How can you assess value for money in a DC scheme? On today's VFM podcast, Darren and I are delighted to talk to David Farrer, one of the chief architects of the current regulations, to find out. Welcome to the VFM Pensions Podcast. This is our third episode, and as ever, I'm delighted to be joined by my co-host, the man who gives Einstein a run for his money in terms of hairstyles, if not his thinking power, <laughs> Chief Executive of Nisco, Nico Aspinall Consulting, Nico Aspinall. Or are you just the intern, Nico? Yeah, a- a- any job title will do, thank you. Uh, I'm delighted, as ever, to be joined by one of the best policy and PR advisors in Very the country. Very kind of you to say, you can stop there. <laughs> you can stop there. He's a man uh, for whom no task is too big, uh, but when you ask him to save a file, he might just get confused with the delete button. I, I've really never seen such a look of panic, uh, look of panic cross your face as did last week, Darren. Uh, but we got it in the bag. It's, of course, Darren Phil. Thank you for that. Yeah, it was a moment of panic. <laughs> <laughs> Computers, eh? Near disaster. Yeah, no, exactly. exactly. And, and as you've already mentioned, Nico, um, we're joined by David Fowler. Um David, you were at the DWP, I think, for um, seven years, was it? Um, well, I was at the DWP for ni- 18 years, 18, but seven, seven years, years on private pensions. pensions. That's right, yeah, yeah. That's right. Yeah. And um, you're now helping out um, peers in the House of Lords, aren't you, um, to add their voices to the climate change debate uh, with peers for the planet. I am indeed. Um, it's great to be here on VFM. Um, Thank you. So, yeah, I'm now working for Peers of the Planet, which is a kind of House of Lords climate and nature caucus. What we essentially try and do is support peers in um, with briefings about uh, it's entirely. So I should emphasize, first of all, it's in, uh, entirely cross party. Uh, we have representation from a whole range of peers across the House, 160 members or more. And we support peers with uh, briefings, with events and with helping them to table amendments to government legislation and indeed to bring forward their own bills. Sounds Fantastic. Good. Thank you. Uh, So let's talk first about the inbox. Uh, We've had a fantastic response to our first couple of episodes. So please do keep your comments uh, coming. Uh, We read them all. Uh, You can post them on the the LinkedIn post that Darren and I make. Uh, We have a LinkedIn group, VFM Pensions. Um, And of course, by email to vfmpensions at gmail.com. And I'm personally delighted to have received some recommendations of things to play on the piano. You've got um, to work it out then, haven't you? Well, uh, so shout out, first of all, to Nikki Holtzhausen, I hope I'm pronouncing your surname correctly, um, who's picked out Eric Satie's Nossiens number one. I hope I'm saying that correctly right. as well. Uh, I will see what I can do. But Darren, do you think you could learn this? I think that's probably uh, beyond me at the moment. <laughs> so I am learning the piano, and I really enjoy learning the piano. I've never... Um, read uh, music or played a musical instrument yeah. and it's something I sort of picked up um, three or four years ago. I'm looking forward to some boogie woogie duets. We need to sort of have a keyboard. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so you know, I, I find it very relaxing and it just um, sort of exercises a different part of my brain mm. um, and you know, it's, it's almost a release from the, the work 
um, side of things, and it's a release from supporting Arsenal. Although that, that release <laughs> hasn't been um, as necessary this season, hasn't it? Yeah, yeah. No. So we we've banned ourselves from talking, let's say, too much about the Arsenal, um, but I think we should be able to talk about the piano. Um, so certainly for myself, I see it as you know David Butcher. We had last week talking about mindfulness mm. and meditation. And I, I think it's a different route into the same sort of zone, right? So you, you've got some combination of reading the music with your eyes, you've got the brain working out what to do with your fingers, you've got the coming back into your ears. It's sort of perfect way to just totally change, you know, the mode of thinking and mode of concentration from what you've been doing in the day. Yeah, and I find that after my lessons, I'm absolutely exhausted. Mm. But, it's, but it's like doing physical exercise. It's a different type of exhaustion from a work exhaustion. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, and no, I very much... Uh, agree with you on that. Um, David, are you instrumental at all or musical? Um, well, uh, th- in in my teens, I used to I used to play bass, which is obviously you know uh, in, uh, rock bass, in, guitar rock bass. bass, encouraged by the shortage of strings relative to uh, you know relative <laughs> to a guitar and the ability to justify playing one note repeatedly on the basis that you were laying down a steady groove. Um, but uh, that hasn't really continued. I do still have a slightly dusty ukulele sitting in uh, ah. sitting in the corner of, of the office. But I should experience the uh, the, the mindfulness benefits of, of yeah. doing that. So. Thanks, guys, for the tip. Yeah, yeah. So, look, 2023 has to be the, the year of uh, picking up our musical instruments, dusting them off, uh, and challenging ourselves. So we shall see what we can do with Darren oh, and, no. uh, <laughs> and Eric Satie. But uh, we'll come back to that over, I'm sure, many future episodes. Cool. And we'd love to hear from you uh, on your thoughts on that. Um, I also, thinking about the inbox, I want to thank Alex Waite, uh, who's a partner at LCP, for, I, we might think of it as a little bit cheesy, um, but thinking about our theme tune and the theme of the podcast, he he wrote a joke for us. He did, didn't he? Um, so <laughs> shall I do the shall I do the lead in and you do the punchline? I can do that. Yeah, okay. brilliant. Uh, so how do you get value for members by shopping? Or Chopin, or shopping around. <laughs> there we go. There we go. Thank right. You, <laughs> yeah, let's move stuff. straight on. <laughs> let's talk about the news. Uh, David, uh, guests on What What do you bring in for us to talk about this week? Well, I thought it was worth talking. Um, now, given that I have kind of made the shift somewhat out of pensions, but not um, not wholly, because after all, pensions legislation and finance legislation does go through the House of Lords, and therefore we support peers with that. I was going to refer to um, Chris Skidmore's review mm. of the costs. Of net zero, which came out on Friday. Um, this was for people who forget the vast numbers of reviews that government endlessly commissions about thing whether it should go ahead with things that it's previously committed to doing, but has got suddenly cold feet about. This was commissioned by Liz Truss in uh, the wake of her uh, um, uh, election. Remember, I remember when back in September. Yeah, yeah. Um, Chris Skidmore was a Conservative MP, former Energy Minister, who's announced he's standing down at the next election. But he um, uh, came in and has produced a very comprehensive view, review in about four months. Um, I don't think the results are really going to be terribly surprising for people. And I think if Liz Truss thought she was going to get some damning response <laughs> on it, she probably ought to have hired somebody like Nigel Lawson or another <laughs> friend of the Global Warming Policy Foundation. Because what she actually got from Chris Skidmore was that actually net zero is um, in the interests of us, you know, of the yeah, UK economy. Yeah, yeah. Financially, it's uh, it's in everyone's interest. And the two big recommendations that I thought was worth pulling out for listeners from the pension space was, first of all, surprise, surprise, he does agree with the uh, with the argument that's made repeatedly by pension stakeholders in the kind of responsible investment and finance and climate space that actually the most important thing is policy stability and a mm, clear sign yeah. of direction. People need to know that government isn't going to keep chopping and changing the kind of net system of subsidies or um, or taxes or, or planning rules or any of these other things. We might come on to that a bit later. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 yeah it's familiar, <laughs> familiar with pensions for sure. And uh, the second uh, the second point. Uh, 
which is probably going to be less good news to um, you know to people from, from, from the pension industry potentially um, is that he does still strongly believe in lots of the things which government committed to in the run up to COP26 but has since COP26 gone rather quiet on so those are things like transition plans that's developing a green taxonomy of sustainable activities and also pushing ahead with sustainable disclosure requirements which are about not just requiring schemes to disclose climate risks but wider environmental risks and indeed environmental impacts. Cool so uh, full steam ahead. Well full steam ahead if the government takes those lessons you know on board. Um, there, there this is already legislated right so, so I, well, I don't, maybe not the pace but we yeah. have a net zero commitment. Yeah. We have the net zero commitment that is full steam ahead mm. um, and uh, and uh, there's, there's strong encouragement, a lot of time-bound recommendations of government to take steps on some right. of these other areas, yeah, including right. not just gas boilers and heat pumps, <laughs> but actually things that are specifically in the finance space. Fantastic. So we're going to try and keep you on a, a VFM brief you can uh, do. In, you our, can in our interview. But um, I, I, as you know, as everyone I'm sure listening knows, uh, climate change is the subject very close to mind, Darren's heart. So yeah. um, no doubt we'll be uh, very generous when you deviate, <laughs> hesitate and repeat into climate change. <laughs> Um, so, yeah, my news item, I wanted to talk briefly about the pension regulators note guidance uh, on uh, the missive, Astros, missive. missive uh, thought piece uh, on current economic conditions, which, of course, gets re reheadlined into uh, cost of living crisis. Uh, and it's and it's not really about that. So um, it's about some combination of market volatility particularly in the run-up to retirement. I think, again, this is a topic that um, people will know that, that I've logged on. I, I, I'm sure Darren, you and I have both spoken at sort of conference platforms yeah. about. Um, and uh, and inflation and, and being invested in cash. So it's kind of, on the one hand, when you kind of see those headlines, you think it's going to be about defaults and mm. making sure that people are not biased towards, you know, a legacy pre-freedom and choice annuity compulsion type regime. But then when you look actually at the note, it says engage with members, talk to them about very complex things, mm -hmm. get them deciding. And so I wonder on what which side of this line that we're sort of starting to evolve so here, which a, side of the line TPR's got to? It's a, it's a really difficult one, isn't it? Yeah. And um, I think we spoke at, um, well, we were both speaking on different panels at an event. Um, it was a DC conference, DG Publishing, actually, yeah, DC yeah, conference yeah. Um, a, few, a few months back. And um, we were talking about the cost of living crisis and whether to communicate mm. or not. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. and you can argue it. It's one of those ones you can argue both ways. And you can come up um, with convincing arguments to communicate and yeah. to really engage mem with members on the issue. Mm. Um, equally, you can come up with convincing arguments to let defaults do their jobs. Um, probably you need a combination of both. Yeah. yeah, It's one of those ones where you don't want to sort of ram it down people's throats. Yeah. yeah but actually, <clears> if people are concerned or um, you know, want further info, then I think schemes in the industry needs to sort of rise to yeah. that challenge and be able to sort of explain things in a really clear way. So what, what I think is most interesting is the sense that the first action the trustees should be doing is talking about stuff, and the second is reviewing the default. Yes. And I would have put those the other way around. Yeah, yeah. So I would be saying... If, you'd say that you're an investment guy, aren't Yeah, you? but look, 23rd of September is a long time ago now, right? So um, we're now kind of five months after a guilt crisis when annuity funds dropped mm. 25, 30, 40%, who knows? Mm. If it's now that you're suggesting to trustees that they need to think about whether people are buying annuities at the age of 60, yeah. I mean... 
wow, this is this is fast paced for regulators, but like very, very slow for members. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. you know, it, it's a big challenge, of course. Um, but I didn't read that note. If I, if I was a trustee reading that note, I'd have just been fear, fear, fear. Every kind of line was like, oh, there's a bunch of stuff I haven't done and a bunch of stuff the regulator is telling me I should be thinking about doing now. So. Excellent. Well, they, those trustees better crack on with it, then, don't they? Yeah, indeed. they're more than welcome indeed. to come on the podcast and uh, talk to us about what they have been doing. Indeed, indeed. Well, so my story is, is sort of related to that, but it's... Um, uh, just picking up on some of the coverage from Hargreaves Lansdowne's um, Savings and Resilience Barometer, mm. um, which, if you remember, we talked a bit about the um, PLSA um, publishing updated retirement living standards yeah. last week. So, again, this is related to that. But their findings were just over two in five um, households are now on track for a moderate, mm. not necessarily comfortable, yeah. moderate um, uh, retirement um, you know, outcome. And that was actually down from 42.6%, so the previous figure was 41.7% in July 2022. So, you know, yes, we are talking about cost of living, economic times are tough, and, you know, building on what um, you were just saying, Nico, you know, trustees and schemes really need to think about how to communicate and what the future looks like in terms of design of defaults and all of that type of stuff. Um, but without adequate contributions, yep. you know, um, without you know getting contributions up to a, deta- a decent mm-hmm. level, and I know PLSA is very sort of vociferous on this one, and there's never a right time to have that debate. But we've got to do something on this, yeah. and we, yeah. we need yeah. to sort of um, agree that path because you know these figures are, you know, pretty shocking. shocking. Yeah. We could at least have the legislation in place as well. The legislation yeah. isn't. I mean, you, you can you can take the enabling powers to do things like drop the age to um, to start increasing contributions, but I still think there were several gaps in the 2008 Act that mean that even when government does decide it's the right time, they still then need to bring forward the primary legislation, they then need to consult on the secondary legislation. So, you know, so so even when you've decided the time is right, you've probably still got a lead time of 18 months or two years, potentially, before the rates start going up again. So by which stage, who knows what crisis might have have befallen you as well. Excuse. um, Yes, indeed. I was was, was on the (laughs) Treasury Select Committee looking at... um, was looking at one of the, the they were doing a series of reports on auto enrollment and mm-hmm. saving and stuff like that as DWP select committee and um, you know I think I got asked the question it's like was it the treasury's fault you know, <laughs> um, because obviously you know um, any increase in default saving you know leads to um, an increase in tax relief mm-hmm. um, and with um, you know difficult public finances you can imagine you know the fiscal position mm-hmm. is really getting in the way of making progress on you know on some of the changes that are necessary um, to auto enrolment, yeah. you know, and we're not talking radical changes. We're just talking yeah. remove banned earnings. We're just talking about changing the age, as you were saying, yeah. David. Um, you know, that's not even having a debate about what the right level of contributions yeah. actually yeah. is. Um, but we need to have that debate sooner rather than later. I would yeah. argue. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, but I- until you're able to raise it out of that kind of short termism. Um, you know, and let's talk about the next 15 years. How do we escalate contributions up to? 20%, 25%, whatever it mm. is, and yeah. get cross-party support for that. Yeah. We, you know, maybe it sounds pessimistic, but my sense is the next God knows how many years is going to be poly-crisis after poly-crisis. Mm. And if you're always in a kind of a short-term spending mindset, then you're never going to up contributions. Yeah. Um, and it's the, the short-term crisis creating this massive long-term crisis. Yeah, indeed. Well, yeah, and I, th- I think that's right. And some of the some of the crises that we're going to encounter if we don't take action sooner rather than later are going to be results of things like old age penury as a result of the contributions yeah. not being increased earlier. So, yeah, yeah. you know, so this thing will um, will compound. 
short-termism and pensions. Who knew? I'm sure we'll come back to that. <laughs> so so, so we, we, we've digressed a bit. Um, uh, but, and, 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 and actually what we, we'd like to do is find a bit more about you, David. Mm. Um, yeah. like my notes here um, say that you used to work in a library or you did some librarianship. And was it says library. you came into pensions via... Metallurgy, is that... Is that, that is how you say it. Well, well, you can say metallurgy or metallurgy. Uh. Um, uh, that is, all of that is correct, yeah. I left <laughs> university with an extremely useful uh, qualification <laughs> in metallurgy and the science of materials. I haven't yet built myself a Bessemer converter, um, but there's still, there's still time for those things. So I haven't really put a huge number of those... Um, those lessons into place but ba I mean I, I graduated in in the early 90s which um, I like to argue at least it was for me a period of deep recession and right. difficulty yeah. uh, job yeah. seeking yeah. which is why I kind of bummed around through varieties of uh, jobs Gained like, life experience yes like that's that. right yeah. I caught up on some belated University of Life studies working <laughs> in things like seed testing laboratories and um, and, and being a um, and, uh, and well I was gonna say uh, the librarianship bug uh, bit me which is probably pushing it a little bit but it's I the did, Dewey Decimal System. I did enjoy the, ner I enjoyed the nerdishness yeah. of it in a, in, a, in a big way. Yeah, so I, so I did get a postgraduate qualification in um, information and library studies, did become the kind of guy who would get excited talking about the Anglo-American cataloging rules <laughs> and, and telling people that the last entry, I think, in the Dewey Decimal System is 999 point, you know, because it goes from 000 to 999, and the final entry is 999.999, which is the history of extraterrestrial civilizations. <laughs> so, so Dewey added that just you know just in readiness for when we find those extraterrestrial civilizations <laughs> and we want to start they're going to tell me it's political it's, it's a red state thing isn't it <laughs> <laughs> so um so and i did that for a while but i um and you know and i and, and I've, i found that kind of stuff very enjoyable because even though yes there were large amounts of kind of tedium stamping and cataloging books and enjoying that you know, i look back but to a those, good stamp right i mean yeah. you know you've got the ink pad yeah. you've got the yeah, yeah. lovely cut out i mean it probably doesn't exist in that form now, does it? Yeah, no, no, increasingly no, things are online, yeah. and um, yeah, I mean, I worked in libraries where you could see the kind of the staff numbers entering kind of terminal decline, and so I kind of blagged my way into into what many kind of young people who sensed librarianship disappearing uh, did, which was the, the kind of school of information architecture. I'll put uh -huh. quotes up here, you know, which is essentially rather than categorising books in a library and putting them in the right order, it's about how you structure websites and, mm -hmm. and so forth. So I went via a stint in the Institute of Electrical Engineers into DWP, first of all, um, working as a, as a qualified librarian, strangely, but doing this kind of web usability information architecture type stuff and, and DVP is like a fantastic place to work for a kind of budding gentleman amateur who just wants to <laughs> randomly you know jump from area to area and, and uh, you know go in at the deep end blag their way through the opening months and yeah. uh, and, and hope to understand what they were doing uh, you know a few a few months later on so I did do some stuff on that I did web accessibility in sort of terms of ensuring that um, you know benefit claimants and our own staff were able to access um, you know our, our tools. Um, then moved into comms research and became a big fan of confidence intervals and statistical significance. <laughs> and, yeah, I loved all that stuff. It was really fun. And so when you when you get these kind of, you know this ninety five percent confidence interval kind yeah. of um, stuff and you know so it basically means there's only a one in twenty chance of the result being random. And when you'd have these kind of like masses of trends that being shown uh, to you and, and, and you'd have like 20 or so um, uh uh, kind of findings of like you know how public opinion had changed about pensions or how public <laughs> opinion had changed about disability and you'd always find some uh, some of those 
movements were completely incomprehensible. Nothing had changed, right. you know, in, in, in the market. And yet, for whatever reason, you know, there'd been a huge dip in sympathy for pensioners or a huge <laughs> increase in, in sympathy for, um, for disabled people. And you'd kind of go, well, hold on, I've got 20 findings. It's a 95% chance of, you know, of, 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 of it being statistically significant. That's probably the one that's not right. yeah, statistically yeah, yeah, significant. Yeah, yeah. So, so I enjoyed all of that stuff. And, and did, you know, statistical uh, knowledge, statistical understanding is, is obviously not widespread. No. So, so was your sense, and this is not putting you on the spot or asking you to name names, but do, do, do politicians understand that kind of, here is 20 results, by the way, one of them is probably false? I think the short answer is probably not very much, no. I mean, I think the... Uh, it's interesting because I, th- I mean there are obviously some ministers who do have a science background. Trace mm. Coffee, for instance, does have you know a very strong um, science background, and so and there is interest among some uh, ministers uh, in seeing things like the underlying data tables. Mm. But I th- but I think there's probably more people who ask for the underlying data tables than actually can interpret them or do something useful right. with them. Um, you know, it's a nice it's, it's kind of comfort blanket to have this kind of like <laughs> I've got masses of data, but 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 there aren't you know just just as there aren't I suppose in in in, in many workplaces. A large number of people who are who are, who are kind of capable of doing yeah. of adding value through some kind of in-depth yeah. interpretation. I mean, there. certainly the experience of trustee boards is there is there is definitely a, let's say a class of trustee who says, could you report on this data point, this single mm. research piece, and then could you add it quarter after quarter to my MI? Yeah, uh, and you find these MI packs expanding and expanding mm. and expanding, mm. uh, and it's like a, a comfort blanket, isn't it? Yeah. I, I I think it's there's a sense that that data might be useful, mm. um, and there's very it's very difficult to prioritise that yeah, yeah. afterwards. Yeah. It's very difficult to prioritise that afterwards. So um, maybe that's a segue. Yeah, maybe that's a segue to uh, David. Yes. What is value for members? Oh sure, apart yeah, from yeah, yeah. fantastic new pensions podcast. Apart from that, oh yes, yeah, yeah. That's true, but I was going to say that first. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, but yeah, I, I mean, I suppose if I was going to um, come down to, and I, you know, and I've heard lots of people talk about this in terms that to me feel quite complicated. Uh-huh. Um, ultimately, at the end of the you know consumer journey, how does somebody know they've had good value for money? And it's ultimately all about the returns. It's all about yeah. the net returns so if i was if i was in a tony blair type mood i would say it's about three things returns <laughs> returns and returns but um but clearly the whole challenge with that stuff is that you don't know at the beginning of the customer journey yeah. consumer journey or whatever whether you know whether those funds are going to get um uh you know the, the the desired for returns and i'm not i certainly wouldn't be encouraging um well, listeners or trustees or whoever to be thinking of this in terms of the fact that what this fund manager has said that if I invest actively, then I'm yeah, very, you know, I'm, yeah, yeah. I'm very likely. I think one of the arguments you've sometimes heard from the fund management industry is, isn't it worth paying a little bit more? They try and do a car analogy. That's when you know yeah. that things are starting to, you know, things are starting to break down when people say, wouldn't you want to pay a bit more and get a Ferrari rather than, you know, <laughs> rather, rather, than, rather than the Morris Minor, whatever. But but that doesn't it doesn't work like that in, sure. in the pensions industry. The higher fees. But actually, you know, negatively correlated with returns. So I think those other measures that people tend to talk about, like qualities of governance mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Um, and charges, are you know effective predictors. But if you get to the end of the journey and you've got a rubbish pension pot, then it's not very much good looking back at all the qualifications the professional trustees on the board uh-huh. had. Yeah, it's yeah. not very good looking back at the low fees, or indeed looking at the amazing tools that um, you, you know that were published on the website that would yeah. help you spend your vanishingly small pension yeah. pot. Yeah. So 
Um, and in terms of admin, because I think people get a bit fixated on that kind of admin question, I, you know, I would kind of again, again say at the end of the journey, people aren't going to say, well, I had a small pension pot, but at least people always answered the phone promptly. Yeah, they they yeah, would be yeah, talking yeah. about about admin reaching a minimum standard. Somebody did answer the phone in a reasonable period yeah, of time. Yeah. It wasn't three rings versus 10 rings. It was yeah. answering the phone. It was things like the annual benefits, the annual benefit statement that arrived through the post was in fact my annual benefit statement yeah. and not somebody else's yeah. that you posted <laughs> to me by accident. You know. So so you have to hit that kind the of... Scepticism. I know, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but, but, but look, because so, so, I think what you're saying is uh, the true test mm-hmm. is like in 40 years' time, yeah. right? So, but our structure is worrying about the first five, 10 years. Mm. You know, we're just, we yeah. were just past the 10th anniversary yeah, of, 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 of auto enrollment. So a lot of the belief set is mm. that if I measure some of the inputs into generating good returns, then in the absence of that kind of 40-year history, mm. uh, I can start to think about whether this governance process is likely to generate 40-year yeah, yeah. returns. Yeah. So, uh, but, but obviously, we've had 10 years of like, very unusual markets, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and maybe we've had 10 years of very unusual kind of trustee governance, uh, we've got an industry which is scaling up. Mm. Yeah. So, uh, you know, how does that kind of come into, how can anyone assess value for money in 2023? Well, I don't think you can, um, I suppose, I mean, with difficulty, I suppose it's the short, uh, it's the short uh, answer to that. You have to get the elements in place, like ensuring fees are, you know, well, I, I hesitate to say the word competitive, because I think we think there's, there's probably downsides probably of fees being, <laughs> being you know, of, the, of an endless focus on, on, on competitiveness. We have to make sure the governance processes are correct. But I think the thing that I suppose I would say on it is that there's a danger sometimes people think they can come up with kind of one unifying measure yeah, of value for right. money, that you can consolidate together the quality of administration, the quality of governance, the fees, the early stage returns, which as you say, Nico, are not going to be um, you know, uh, necessarily any kind of guide to the future and um, you know, and process and crunch all of that and say this one scores 82 whereas that one scores 75. This is, you know, this is a multi-dimensional mm. measure. You can't put governance on a, on the same scale yeah. as fees or returns. But, but in, the, um, in the absence of that magic number, mm. yeah. which I think everyone in the industry would love, but yeah. we're never going to get that. Yeah, well they yeah. should sort of stop talking about it. Though, yeah, because yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. I think there are still people who just keep saying what we really need is a clear direction from DDPP of, and it's like you're not right. going to get that. I right. don't think, I don't think, well, I wouldn't be encouraging DBP to do that. I think if DBP did do it, you might end up with this kind of, you know, things that looked back at historic returns and some of the kind of downsides of the Australian model where yeah, people right. start getting punished the moment that the returns slip below, you know, whatever the whatever some the prevailing benchmark. Yeah, yeah. So, so I agree with you about the, the net return point, you mm. know, because ultimately it's um, how you maximise the return from the money that mm. the people put in. And if we're talking about increasing contributions and all of that, we need to make sure people's money is working as hard as possible. For yeah. them. You know, that's 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 a no-brainer and stuff. Um, but but also I do think though that um, just focusing on investment alone, yeah. while it's a big chunk, you know, while I would hundred percent agree with you that basic admin and answering the phone, mm. yeah, and <laughs> metrics against that is aren't value for money. Yeah. yeah. But there must be a, a point at which the scheme is innovating or providing additional services or, you know, um, really trying to help people that goes over and above, yeah. you know, to, to help that customer experience yeah. to, to, to reach a level of excellence could, compared to the rest of the market. So but can I frame that differently? Because I, 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 I sort of disagree. Um, and I know we're here to hear David's <laughs> views. But, That's but, fine. But, but yeah, I think the bridge is what I was talking about in terms of annuities. Right. So... There has to be a realization that you you do need to engage with retirement. Mm-hmm. So, and then as an actuary, 
I can tell you that engaging with a retirement which looks like a pension for life, an income for life, which is exposed to the yield curve, maybe looks like an annuity at the right age, mm. uh, versus a savings pot, which is a capital amount, yeah. which maybe I plan to run down over a couple of years. There's a lot of tax conversation there. Those have really, really different uh, outcomes in terms of how you design that kind of last step of the yeah. step of the journey, yeah. mm. and you need so to know, you need to know what the member wants as well. Yeah, so if you've got the wrong framing of that problem, yeah. then uh, you are going to deliver poor returns for them, unless you're very lucky. Yeah. So yeah. that that we have to get people engaged at the right stage yeah. with the simplest possible version of those yeah. problems, and it's not about so that they can then go and maximize. Like yeah. yeah. It's yeah. about you know how do you want to spend your money. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That, that is the thing which is kind of important to, 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 to save us. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, on, on that decumulation or, or the run up to decumulation question, I suppose I always quite, used to quite like the, the, the way that I'd heard Rustin Smith outline this in relation to, and I, I, don't, know, I, I don't know whether this is Tesco's scheme with Elgin or whether it's, whether it's the you know, original, I think it must be that because I don't think Tesco ever had a DC scheme, did it? But, um, you know, his, his, their kind of model was you keep people on a default, um, you try and make a kind of, you know, best guess of where people are. You don't you don't try and kind of profile people. I, think, yeah. I, I get concerned with this kind of stuff where people say, "Well, the pot's less than thirty k, so you're probably going to take it as cash." Yeah. So uh, you know, so I'll target cash. We don't know anything about the history of that person and what the other pension provision they have. Exactly, so yeah. so try and do something that kind of that that that, that, that can feasibly hit any of the options that the saver might want. De-risk a bit, but don't de-risk too much. But also keep prompting the saver to get in touch when the saver does know what they want yeah. and encourage them to, um, uh, you know, and then when the saver does tell you decisively what, what they want, then you move them onto that, you know, onto the relevant profile. Yeah. That, but the, but this is where you're damned want. if you do and damned if you don't, aren't you? I mean, you could have a bias as a trustee which says annuity is the best solution, right? Because, you know, you come out of an actuarial world, you believe in mm. uh, income for life, and then maybe that pot dropped 30%, but in income terms, you're absolutely fine. Maybe it's improved against annuity mm. rates. Uh, but if you believed that because they've got less than £10,000, they're likely to take a trivial commutation and take it out as lump sum in one go, you mm. may well have lost them a significant proportion of that part. So, yeah, yeah. you know... You, I, I, but I don't, I don't think trustees should make those kinds of decisions. I don't think trustees should say our savers should have annuities or we we predict that this kind of saver should have... Uh, you know, should but this take is where kind of there's a sort of passive form. endorsement, active endorsement piece, right? So they, they are endorsing something with their design. They are. I, I, they I, are, but, but all they can ultimately do, I think, in the absence of any information to the contrary from the saver is try and target something that won't mm. be too bad for any of the possible outcomes sure. yeah, the saver yeah, wants to take. I think that's right because, you know, people change their minds as well. Yeah, and people they can't know the future. Yeah. Yeah. Going, going back to your point, though, about the, um, you know, the innovation and stuff. I mean, I, I, I totally get where that's coming from, but I think TPR had something interesting in their VFM framework where they, where they kind of said you shouldn't be considering, uh, you know, well, when, when you're trying to evaluate the value of those tools, you should be thinking about whether those are tools that savers actually need or yes, there's some right. visible yeah, demand for. Yeah, Don't pile point, yeah. loads of extra yeah. things on and say, we think yeah. this is in savers' interest. Yeah. Charge them more money because those tools, some of those tools are going to be yeah. complicated. Yeah. Um, and then be really, you know, and then kind of go, well, our scheme's value for money, the savers just didn't want it. You made a mistake right, if, if right, you right. designed an expensive yeah. tool which you charged the savers for, which they didn't want. I think that's so. what David was talking about last week, David Butcher. Yeah. Just that empathy with members, how people might use these yeah. things. Yeah. Yeah. And, and there's, yeah, there's no point in providing services that, that aren't going to be used because no, that's wasted no. money. It's not value for money. Yeah. yeah. So it's difficult to get a common metric. Yeah. Mm. Um, a lot of this stuff is quite subjective. So, 
Um, who are also um, talking about, I think, in the um, initial call for evidence that the DWP did on mm. value for money and stuff, and the regulator, no, it's the regulators actually, it's yeah, the, yeah. the joint FCA TPR consultation, mm. was sort of seeking views on league tables and stuff like that. Mm. You know, how is that going to work? Yeah, I mean, I was thinking about, the, the, I think the league tables point is is hazardous for, for, for a government department to start producing. Um, I don't think league tables in themselves are bad, but I think for a government to start producing that and then showing I mean I, th- I think they should just be slightly cautious about what what the implications of that are when a, when a pension scheme consistently appears at the bottom of the table or near the bottom of the table year after year there will be an expectation that government should be doing something about yeah, that and yeah, what is government yeah, yeah. going to do about schemes that have taken slightly heterodox investment strategies that appear to be underperforming at the moment are they going to say no you need to get back into the herd yeah <laughs> or, or you know or do they force them to consolidate you yeah. know consolidating um master trust with very many different participating employers is going to create a huge overhead for you know for the participating employers and government doesn't really know you know yeah. whether that investment strategy is ultimately doomed yeah. or not so i think league tables are, are kind of fine in the sense well I think I think government should be responsible for making schemes get the data out which yeah. is now happening in terms of returns in a reasonably standardized way but I think it has to be simpler and and, and less kind of hazardous for government for third parties to be yeah. you know to be to be presenting that and to be doing reports and making their own assumptions about how they do that comparison league table of costs <laughs> oh. Well, I suppose a league table of costs is probably more useful than a league table of governance, but, but probably not much. I guess would be. Yeah. I mean, one one of the pieces that I think Darren and I, you know, we've we've both spoken about is the need to separate the investment costs from the mm, other think, costs. Yeah. 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 Um, because I think that would show that people who are surprisingly close to the bottom on uh, the uh, investment costs are maybe higher up the pack when it comes to the all-in costs. Yeah. yeah. And people are maybe underspending on the investment yeah. side. Yeah. Um, do, you, do you fear people underspending on the, on the investment side? Not massively, yeah. no. I mean, I, may, I don't know. The first job, that, <laughs> the first job that I did in private pensions was um, was uh, so the charge cap. So don't blame me, guys. The charge cap <laughs> was already um, decided and had been announced. I think about four days before I before I joined, and, and and I, together with a couple of colleagues, were then told, right, your first task is design how this thing we're actually going to make this thing work. Um, and and so, that, but that did give me quite a lot of kind of Im, you know immersion in that kind of charges discussion. But what I mean, what was quite. Um, Interesting. I'm conscious I'm going to completely wander off the topic. So I'll keep, I'll keep <laughs> yeah, this quite brief. But, but, but just as a small kind of irony, uh, kind of irony on this, on the consultation on charging, um, uh, where you know DBP was positing the idea that a lot of fees are wasted potentially on quite high cost investment strategies yeah. that don't necessarily deliver. The two. Um, counter arguments that were put repeatedly to indus- by industry to, to the to DBP in the consultation response were um, diversified growth funds uh-huh, um, right. and Neil Woodford right. um, because both of those were doing very very well <laughs> at the time. You know, so so I what think a I window we <laughs> could, could do a histogram and work out when that was. Yeah. So you have to be you know just kind of cautious about this idea that because you spent more on investment, it's a better investment proposition. You can have high cost investment propositions that massively yeah. underperform. But I guess the narrative is moving now to uh, the role of pensions as a capital provider in society. Yeah. Um, and we'll hopefully get time to come on to climate change and the role sure. that pensions might have in setting up wind farms and mm. solar and mm. yeah. insulating homes. Um, and, uh, you know, there is uh, a wide ESG impact agenda. Think about social housing. Mm. Think about other sorts of forms of uh, kind of impact investment. And those those assets are more expensive. Yeah. So I guess there's there's a big 
difference between that kind of bucket of assets versus hedge funds, private equity, two in 20 charging. Yeah. Mm. Um, so, uh, you know, isn't there a risk that we kind of lose that kind of role of pension funds as a provider of capital in society because we're, we're, we're kind of focused on cost? And it's not the fault of the regulation, yeah, it's the yeah. fault of the EBCs who are refusing to kind of uh, back well, back the... Well, it's the employer. The first question the employer is asking is cost, right? And the EBC Mm. is in some way failing to have the relationship enough. And, uh, you know, it's about the engagement of that employer as much as anything. But enough to go, actually, yeah, they're charging 15 bips, but, like, I wouldn't put my money in it because... Mm. Mm. No, I'm sure that's a risk. I suppose, I mean, I I still, um, you know, even though to some extent I've kind of shifted out of pensions and towards more environmental facing job I still feel slightly nervous when people say things like shouldn't pensions be investing in in, in social goods I think they should uh, you know I think the clearest argument you can make is that um, it's good to mitigate the risk um, of, of climate change and, the, and, if, and if there's if there's one investment that's going to kind of adjust well to uh-huh. the low, to the impending low carbon transition there surely has to be things like low carbon infrastructure yeah. Yeah. That, you know and, and, and that is definitely worth pension funds with a sufficient scale to be you know to be kind of developing capabilities in that area um, but yeah, I think you know the, the the challenge that certain asset classes are inherently more expensive than than um, than other asset classes does mean that um, in, you know inherently there will be limited. You won't be able to develop hundred percent infrastructure. Um, you know, invested pension funds in uh, within the charge cap. But I think you can do pretty much all of the things that that you mentioned. A bit, yeah. Um, you know, the only challenge historically has been the whole two and twenty model and accommodating yeah. that. Yeah, I, is you that, know, is that well, even that, is it, is it, you know, should be be trying to accommodate that for pension funds. Uh, you know, like, you no, know, I no, think exactly. would be my shot. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I just, I, I kind of think. To some extent, I think the industry, the the the, the fund, the industry which is slightly addicted to two and twenty, saw it. Um, uh, you know, a risk that if they didn't intervene more swiftly to, um, you know, to to, to try and engineer their fee structures into the cap, then there would come a point, and it's already coming a point, isn't there, yeah. with schemes like Nest, where they're saying, well, you can chuck all those fee structures out of the window, we'll ju- yeah. we're just going to pay you on, on a percentage funds under management yeah. basis. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, you know, and, and other schemes will surely join Nest in time. Mm. The, the challenge, I suppose what's been achieved by the industry, if not necessarily in the interest of the saver, by the legislation, is that pension funds don't have to have those those kinds of conversations, or, the, or or pension funds don't can't rely anymore on the legislation to prevent them from signing up to those right, structures. Yeah, yeah. Hopefully, there's still a relatively limited risk of them actually signing up to those sure. structures because people are still quite fixated on costs, yeah, as you say. Yeah, and so, in that yeah, sense, yeah. the fixation on costs might still be quite a good thing yeah, rather than people being yeah. sucked into two and twenty hedge funds. But there's, I mean, you, you and I have talked a few times about the kind of look through and complexity of yeah. just. You know, we've, we've got a mishmash of different vehicles that the pension scheme might access. And mm. Some of them are really expensive, but we call them free because they're listed equities, right? So mm. we've got lots of extraction by the the, the employees uh, and the senior uh, leaders of the business, mm. whereas other models are much more transparent, but they therefore look more expensive. So, uh, you know, we're, we're, it, until we can separate our costs of investment and maybe even drop the discussion about costs of investment and just talk about net performance... Mm. You know, there's a lot of ways to mask things and a lot of uh, uh, unintended consequences that come from that. I'm just not sure that we'll ever get to that position for the reasons we've been talking about, yeah, where you yeah. can just forget about the fees and talk about performance because you'll only know whether the performance was any good at, 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 yeah, yeah. at the end. Um, 
I, I mean, I still think, and I, I suppose I would say this, wouldn't I? But I, because I was, had a hand in in DPP's position in terms of look yeah. through, but I still think the right decision was reached, which is that that, that you essentially you keep looking through until you reach the kind of end of the of the, the, the of, of, of the you know of the financial management aspects of the financialization of this. Nobody would be arguing, I'm sure, that you know in a fund of fund structure, you just you just look at the fees charged by the overarching yeah. fund manager. You have to look at the underlying, um, you know, the, the, the charges in the underlying funds. And similarly, I think the same argument is completely reasonable should apply in investment trusts. Um, but it's perhaps not reasonable to apply it in things like REITs because those are essentially property management companies yeah. that have, you know, that, that have some of the appearances of, of investment trusts. So you stop looking through at REITs, but you do look through investment yeah. trusts. You do look through other funds of fund structures. But yeah, sure. Tesco. If you're buying shares in Tesco, there are loads of underlying costs yeah. Uh, yeah. sitting in there. But we don't want to, you know, we, we can't start looking at the, the the electricity bills for the conveyor belts at the checkouts and, <laughs> and counting them towards the like, the fees. I love the way you started. Um, well, we, the, the answer to Nico's question around um, the fact that you know your your first task was to design the charge cap after and and think about how it could be implemented after <laughs> it was decided that the charge cap was going to be introduced yeah. so you know so, so that's that's a bit of insight honestly <laughs> <laughs> making there you know um, and what we're up against um so, 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 David, um, you know, working in DWP for seven years, mm. yeah, in um, private pensions for seven years, in private pensions, sorry, yeah, private pensions for seven years. You know, you've obviously had lots of policy successes, yeah. Mm. Um, but what do you look back on and think? Oh, we didn't quite get that right. Or if there's, if if you could have your time again, you know, what would you change? Um, well, I do, th- I do think we've. I think I probably expended a lot of energy on um, on the kind of investment innovation agenda that possibly wasn't actually you know necessary that did suck up you know a significant amount of staff to um, you, you know to, to 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 deliver something that ultimately is a kind of treasury led uh, you know kind of policy to deregulate. Uh, this is the sort of productive business. finance. Yeah, yeah. The LTAF world. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I suppose, uh, but but you know, hey, I, I I wasn't you know I wasn't the minister. I don't run the department. Sure. So um, you know, they 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 will make their own decisions. I think um, I, I suppose I would have liked to have got further in the in the kind of consolidation and scale agenda. Mm-hmm. And I suppose one of the things that I saw as a bit of a success in uh, in that was you know it was like helped to kind of start that off with the bulk transfers um, work, which was um, going back to about 2017, 2018, where people yeah. were still having to issue actuarial certificates yeah, every yeah. time a DC scheme wanted to consolidate into a master trust. Just yeah. madness in terms of bureaucracy. Mm-hmm. And uh, this was while Brexit was going on, and there were loads of you know DEFRA were bringing forward a thousand SIs that they had to <laughs> kind of like transpose. <laughs> into UK law but it was still uh, you know I think I had to sell the benefits of consolidation actually being kind of good in terms of member outcomes being potentially good in terms of taxpayer um, you know outcomes as well Um, and I think that really did set the ball rolling to the point where you know for for periods of time and probably in the the past and probably in the future ministers have been really excited about consolidation and they see scale as a a big part of the solution sometimes that's informed by wanting to invest in productive finance of course but I think people have also recognized the wider um, you know membership benefits from 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 doing that Yeah. yeah And I'll, I'll always think of you as the man who introduced the climate change disclosure re- regulations. So it's your fault. 
Well, uh, yeah. I, I was going to say that was a positive, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> opinions made it. It depends on you having to draft a report. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I mean, I suppose I would always say to, yeah, to people who are kind of like, yeah, cursing DVP or me personally uh, about that, that, um, that, you know, so much of that stuff is a once only report. You know, you have to have the governance right. processes in place. You have yeah. to do the risk management. Yeah. Beyond that, you know, it's the, you've got to revisit the strategy, but scenario analysis is only every three years. Mm. The metrics are the things you have to report annually. And people will complain about, you know, lack of standardization in the data. But look, climate change is quite urgent. Yep. And I think yeah, if we're yeah, waiting yeah. for every country on earth, um, but given that pension funds are pretty internationally diversified, to implement standardized uh, legislation for reporting CO2 yeah. emissions, I think it might be a teeny bit too late. Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah. No, yeah, so. no I, I think it's a massive positive. Yeah, um, thank you. Congratulations. Thank <laughs> you for your service. And, and yeah, I don't think, you know, it's sort of good governance, yeah, um, needs transparency um, to, to operate effectively and mm. getting schemes to, and it's not the report itself yeah. quite often, yeah. Um, it's the thinking and the processes yes. and that, that, you know, the governance of the scheme has to sort of go through to mm. actually properly consider and think about these issues and I yeah. think that's a real value add in yeah. the transparency and, and, and talking to members about it yes yeah I mean, we thought as a team quite hard about how to avoid that kind of box ticking process yeah. because yeah. I think there was definitely a sense in the ESG regulations in 2018 where people had to you know update their statement of investment principles and say what their policy was on this stuff that um, you know get, people got long lead times people got a year yeah. to, to implement that and then still typically what you ended up with is a sentence saying oh we think ESG considerations might be material so we tell all our fund managers to think about it yeah. and and, you know, and that was the beginning and the end of it. Whereas actually saying in the TCFD regulations, you know, so what do you actually do? What you know, what's your what's the governance structure that ensures yeah. you manage this? What risk management processes have you got in place? And you, not what do you tell your fund managers to do, but what do you, you know, because you ultimately have to have this this oversight of the fund managers. I think that was a step forward. So yeah, I'm sorry just, to the industry uh, if it involves too much bureaucratisation. No, I'm, I'm just thinking of the um, the legal fees and um, you know, senior management time spent on you know making sure that that's sentence that you mentioned David about mm. ESG was compliant oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah, you know. yeah. Um, but anyway um, we could carry on this conversation we, for we hours couldn't could, we yeah. um, but you know time has caught up with us um, we, 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 again you can probably tell but we're in the pod the, yeah we're the in the pod, pod. Yeah. So we're a few more like, people walking past I think no today, exactly a couple of doors banging yeah, yeah, hopefully yeah, we yeah. can edit <laughs> some of that out um, but you know don't, thank you for David for joining us yes thank um, you um, thank you thank you to the guys at DG Publishing again for, mm. for hosting us um, it's great to have a studio by the Thames isn't it it's, oh, it's, 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 it's yeah. really nice and um, you know one of the things I know that they're working on at the moment is and I think we mentioned this last time but the Impact and Responsible Investment Conference which is on the 21st of March and you know we'll be picking up a lot of the themes mm. within the podcast of that I think they will um, and that's at London Zoo so that could be quite an interesting mm. one as well and I'm, yeah. I think they're hoping you haven't told me about this yet I think I might well, well, you know, oh, yeah, well, yeah. Yeah. if your name's not on the list you're not coming <laughs> <laughs> uh, but David it's been absolutely brilliant thank, thank you. you very much um you know, and, and, and Nico, we've got um, who have we got next week? Uh, so next week, uh, we're hoping to get confirmation that it'll be Amanda Latham uh, from Barnet Waddingham. So she uh, was formerly the pensions regulator. Yeah, she was my former compadre. Yeah. 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 Yes, it's nice continuity. Yeah. Um, uh, then we've got what you've written down is I'm going to say the big beast, the big beast. <laughs> Greg <laughs> McClyman. Um, then we have Cushion Studios Purcell, Nest Zoe Alexander, and XPS's Sophia Singleton. So yeah, we 
got a great guest list coming up. If you would like to appear on the show, yep. please do email us yep. on vfmpensions at gmail.com. Uh, we might be pushing you into June at this well, rate, but yeah, we're delighted to hear from you. But yeah, I'm, I've been amazed by the number of people that have contacted us and said, you know, we'd yeah. like to sort of get involved in stuff. So, yeah, this is cool. the chance to, to debate and discuss the issues. Um, and then looking forward to, we can't release the dates. We've been told strict, strict uh, secrets uh, from uh, DWP. Uh, but uh, Darren and I are aware of the launch date of the VFM consultation. So we're hoping to do a special episode around the VFM consultation, uh, which might involve uh, Darren and I having to read it uh, and yep. reporting to you guys. So watch out for that uh, towards the beginning of February. I, I don't want to, or how many sleeps left until the VFM consultation? <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. So, yeah, thank you very much uh, to all our listeners. Um, do like, share, follow all of the stuff that you do in, on social media. Um, and until um, next time, um, thank you, David. Thank you, Nico. Thank you for having Thanks, me. Thanks, everyone.